are listening to the Sermon Audio Podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas. For more information about our church, you can find us at heightschurch.org. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, uh, maybe that's on your phone, on a tablet, or a copy of God's Word in your hand. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're in a series on 2 Timothy, and we're just going to, over the next several weeks, be moving through this book. Last week, we said that uh, Paul was calling Timothy, this young uh, man in his faith, to fan the flame, the, the gift of God that was in them, and that's in verse 7. And what that meant was to kindle afresh, to kind of light a fire anew. If you think about your fireplace, you got to stoke the fire every so often. And so that prayer was, God, stoke what's in us. Reignite our passion for you. Reignite our love for you. And now Paul is going to begin to talk about guarding something. And I want you to see what he says down in verse 14, because this is kind of our key verse for the morning. So I'm going to start there, and then we're going to work our way backwards. But notice what he says in verse 14. He says, but the Holy Spirit who dwells within us Guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. He's calling you to guard something this morning. Guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. When you think about guarding something, all of us guard what we value. Just think about that in your life. What you value, you will guard. Um, Just take for instance, you know, you, you value your home. You value your possessions. So what do you do? You lock your doors? You lock your windows? Maybe you, you have a security alarm on your, on your home? Um, you know, you, you guard and you value your privacy information. So you value that. So on websites you go to, you, you put in a password, right? So what we value will guard. I mean, take, for instance, money, right? You, you value money. So you guard your money by digging a hole and putting it in your backyard, slipping it under the mattress, right? You take what you're worth, your net assets, and you put them out on your kitchen table, and you just leave it there for all the people to see that come into your house, right? Is that the way you guard your money? No. Why? Because you value your money. So you put it in a bank. You lock it away. You ask someone else to guard it for you, or maybe you've got valuables that are in a safety deposit box that you've locked away, you stored away. Why? Because what you value, you will guard. And so Paul is telling Timothy, guard the gospel. So in verse 14, guard what is entrusted to you, guard the gospel. And so when he's telling Timothy and he's telling me and he's telling you, that is if we as believers in Jesus Christ value Jesus, we value the gospel, then we will guard the gospel. Now, I know at this point already in the message, just let's see, five minutes deep, some of you are looking at me with that tone of voice again. And you give it to me sometimes. And what happens when you look at me with that tone of voice is you're already starting to think of some questions. And when I say you are to guard the gospel, some of you are thinking, whoa, hang on, no, 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 no. That's your job. You're the preacher. It's my life group teacher's job. There's no way I can guard the gospel. I haven't been to seminary, or I don't know a whole lot, or, or I'm this, you know, I, I, I can't guard the gospel. Why in the world 
Is Paul calling me to do that? He's certainly not calling me to do that. I'm a teenager, or I'm in my early 20s, or I'm retired. I mean, no way that I can really guard the gospel. This isn't for me. Well, if you're asking that question this morning, thank you so much for the audience participation, because that's a dead-on question. Is Paul really talking to you when he says to Timothy in verse 14, guard the gospel? Well, let me say this. If you value Jesus and you value the gospel, then will you guard it? Notice what he says and how we guard the gospel. In verse 8, he begins to give us three different exhortations that is going to teach us to guard the gospel. He says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now when he is using that term gospel, what does he mean? See, the gospel is good news. That's literally what the term means. It means good news. But it's not just good news in general. The gospel is good news specifically. It's the specific news about a specific person and what he has done. See, the gospel is the good news of how God, through the work of Jesus Christ, has taken sinful man and himself and reconciled us together. So the gospel is about the good news of how God sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for sinners like you, to die for sinners like me, take all our sin, all our diseases, all our worries, all our doubts upon himself on the cross. Then when they put him in a tomb, they thought, ah, that's, he's done. There's no way he's coming back to life. Well, three days later, the good news of the gospel is Jesus rose again, and he defeated all of that. He defeated all of sin, all of Satan, all of hell, all of diseases, all of our problems, all of our worries. So the good news of the gospel is Christ has the keys of the kingdom. He has the authority in all things that whoever comes to Jesus now by faith is forgiven of their sin. And brought in a relationship with God. Is that not good news? Amen? Man, in a world of bad news all the time, rehearse the gospel. Remember the gospel. Guard the gospel. And what does he say in verse 8? Don't be ashamed of the gospel. You know, we've all been ashamed of things, right? You ever been ashamed of something you did? Something you said? Something you should have done that you didn't do? Right? We've all been there. We've all felt shame. We've all felt ashamed of something. Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, we went over this last week, and if you weren't here, let me catch you up on this. Where was Paul writing this letter? Writing this letter in a Roman prison. The crime that Paul was charged and convicted of was preaching Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the Romans had a problem with that message that I just went over in the gospel because the Romans said, well, wait a minute, hang on, you're telling people to worship Jesus and not Nero. You're telling people that Jesus is their king and not Nero. Wait a minute, that, that, that's cause for riots. Like we got to stop this movement. We got to put this whole Christianity thing out. So we're going to start arresting these Christians. We're going to start arresting these preachers. We're going to put the guys like Paul in a prison. And he is writing this last letter to his friend Timothy, awaiting his execution by the hands of Nero. But it also upset the Jews. 
Because this message of Jesus being king, this message of Jesus being savior, the Jews were rocked within their foundation. And they thought, well, wait a minute, that's not how we get to God. The Old Testament's taught us is through keeping the law and being good and being moral. But wait a minute, now you're telling me by faith to trust in this Jesus to give him all my sin and trust in him and his sacrifice. And it's not about what I can do, it's what he can do. And the Jews said, no, no, we don't want this Jesus. We don't want this message around. So you have all these forces trying to stamp out the gospel message. You have all these forces trying to get rid of it and eradicating it. But what's happening? Paul's writing this letter. And he says, don't be ashamed of this Jesus. Don't be ashamed of this Jesus I'm about to die for. Don't be ashamed of this Jesus that I'm in a prison for. And you know what the good news is? That no government can stop the message. No person can stop the message. We've seen this all throughout history. Governments trying to suppress it. People trying to suppress it. But what happens 2,000 years later, we're reading this letter that this guy wrote from prison. Amen? And what does he say? Don't be ashamed of it. Listen, you don't have to be ashamed of Jesus. You don't have to be ashamed of being a Christian. It's okay to let people know that. It's okay to let people know, no, I follow this king by the name of Jesus. Because what's happening right now in our culture is you're seeing our culture turning quickly away from the gospel. You're seeing things happen in our culture that we may have thought, okay, that may be three years down the road or five years down the road, and it's all sped up. And now we are living in a society right now where it's not popular to be a Christian. That the idea of American Christianity is dying and the idea of Christendom is dead. And what you're seeing is a culture turning and turning away quickly into secularism. I mean, there's two prevailing thoughts and ideologies in our culture right now. As I explain them, they'll, you'll understand them and you'll, you'll get them and you'll go, oh, okay, that's what that is. One of the most prevailing thoughts in our culture right now is what's called the, the, therapeutic deism. Excuse me. Therapeutic deism, that word's getting close to mayonnaise size. And I, I, I try not to use words bigger than mayonnaise often for the reason of not getting them out of my mouth. But therapeutic deism, right? Therapeutic deism is simply this. If I believe something is right because it makes me feel good, then it's right. And that's therapeutic deism. Okay, so I'm going to define my system of rightness and truth and morality on how I feel. So if it makes me feel good, then it's right. So a therapeutic deist would essentially say, as long as I feel good by what I'm doing, as long as I believe in some type of a God, then when I die, I go to heaven. Because my standard of truth is going to be based on my feeling and my experiences, not on something that we would say as Christians, the Bible. That the Bible is our source of authority, where a therapeutic deist would say, no, 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 that's based on my feelings, that's based on my thoughts, it's based on my experiences. Secondly would be the new atheism. New atheism rejects God, and it really rejects a respect for those who have a belief in God. And so what you have with new atheists essentially saying, no, there's not a God, and we don't believe in a God, but we don't respect you who even believes in a God. And so what you have is this in our culture, swinging quickly away from a foundation of understanding that there is a God. So then what do we do as Christians? Do we hide? Or do we say, no, we're, we're not going to be ashamed of Jesus. 
We're going to share Jesus. We're going to love Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to value Jesus. Because remember, you guard what you value. What you value, you're going to guard. I love the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred in 115 A.D., He was born in 68 AD. Now, Polycarp was a disciple of John, and that's John from the dirty dozen 12 disciples of Jesus, John, right? So, like, he sat under John's teaching, who sat under Jesus' teaching. Like, that's a pretty good teacher right there when you get to hang out with John, right? Polycarp grew up, he grew to be a pastor of a church in Smyrna. And what happened is the Romans came in and said, Polycarp, you got to stop preaching Jesus. You got to stop this. He said, no, no, I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep telling people about Christ. No, no, you got to stop this. 86 years old, he's arrested. They said, Polycarp, we're going to give you a chance to get out of prison. Just recant Jesus. Just say you don't believe in Jesus anymore. You get to go home. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, Polycarp, we're going to beat you. We don't have to beat you, but if you'll just say you don't believe in Jesus, you get to go home. No, I'm not going to do that. Finally got to a point where they said, okay, Polycarp, we're going to kill you. We're going to burn you alive at the stake. But you don't have to be burned alive at the stake. All you got to do is recant. All you got to do is say you don't believe in Jesus, you get to go home. Polycarp, at the age of 86 years old, right before they lit the match, said these words. He says, for 86 years, I've given my life to Christ. He never did me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Jesus says these words in Mark chapter 8. He says, whoever is ashamed of me in this generation, I'll be ashamed when I come again in my kingdom. Are you going to be ashamed of Christ? Or are you going to guard what you value? Do you value the gospel? Are you willing to stand up and say, this is who I believe in in Christ? Notice what else Paul says. In verse 8, he says, not only are we not to be ashamed in Christ, but we're being willing to suffer for the gospel. He says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How are we to suffer? Through God's power. That God will give us power to suffer for him. But when we talk about suffering, we don't really like that idea in our American Christianity, do we? In our American Christianity, we want it soft. We want it easy. I mean, for our American Christianity, a lot of us have built the idea and the theology around that God is supposed to add to my comforts. God is supposed to add to my needs. But remember, where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. What is he in prison for? Loving Jesus and telling people about him. See, Paul wasn't ashamed of that message. He wasn't ashamed of Christ. This morning, you will guard what you value. You will always guard what you value. There's a story that I love in Luke chapter 18. And it's about a rich man. And he comes up to Jesus. And, and this is a, a, a good guy, the Bible says. He, he said, you know, I try to keep all the rules. He's done well for himself. And he says, Jesus, I, I, I want to go to heaven. How do I go to heaven? And Jesus tells this rich man, you got to sell everything and give it to the poor. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't building a works-based salvation. He wasn't saying that if you sell everything today and give it to all your possessions to the poor, you automatically go to heaven. But Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew this guy's heart and he knew this guy's mind. 
And he looked at him, he says, wait a minute, hang on, you value something more than me. You value your money. So let me put it to the test. If you'll give all your money away, then you can follow me. And the guy's thinking, no way, right? No way am I doing that. And he turns around, he walks away from Jesus. Why? Because he valued his wealth more than he valued Jesus. And you guard what you value. He says, no, I'm going to guard my money. I'm going to guard that because I love that more than I love Jesus. So I'm not going to do that. Well, then there's people in the crowd that hear what happened. And they know that guy. And they're like, wait a minute, that's a good guy. Like he does good things for people. He's done really well for himself. And like if that guy can't get into heaven, then how in the world am I going to get into heaven? And Jesus says these words, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I love that. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter hears this. And I love Peter. How many, for you, those of you that know the 12 disciples, any Peter fans out there, right? You know why I love Peter? Like this guy tweets before he thinks, right? He's just going to say it, and then he's going to think about it later, right? He's the guy in the storm on the boat where Jesus is walking on water and Peter's like, is that you, Jesus? And Jesus is like, yep. And then he just jumps out of the boat and starts walking on water. He doesn't think about the safety. Like, if I'm in the boat, I'm thinking, hey, guys, tie a rope, right? Like, tie a line that you can shimmy me back in. Like, Peter just jumps in. That's Pete. A lot of us identify with Pete. We love Pete for that reason. Peter hears all this going on. And he goes, hey, Jesus, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. We've left all to follow you. Like, can I just remind you, Jesus? Like, we left all of our stuff to follow you. What, what about us? Jesus says these words. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Following Jesus ought to cost you something. Following Jesus ought to cost you something. But the problem of what we've done is we've built a cheap American Christianity where we've said following Jesus equals no suffering, no sacrifice, no commitment. I'll just follow Jesus when it's convenient, when I want something from God. That's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Christ. A Puritan preacher by the name of J.C. Ryle once said it this way, A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Hear me on this, and especially our teenagers in the room. You need to learn this because some adults have forgotten this. Doing what's right is not always easy, but doing what's right is always right. Doing what's right is not always easy, but doing what's right is always right, even if that means suffering for the gospel. You will guard what you value. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Be willing to suffer for Jesus. But finally, notice what he says in verses 13 through 14 of how we are to guard the gospel. He says in verse 12, let's actually pick up there. For which I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. 
For I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been able to have been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do we guard this gospel? Let me first say this before we get into a little more application. For some of you, you have to realize you cannot guard what you do not have. Can't guard what you don't have. And for some of you that are here in this morning or maybe you're watching online today, you don't have Christ as your Savior. Therefore, you can't guard the gospel because you don't have it yet. And if that's you, if you're here, listen, we're so glad that you're here. And I welcome your questions. I welcome your doubts. I welcome those conversations that you need to have to help you take that next step of faith to place your faith in Christ. And maybe you're here because you were invited to be here. Maybe you're watching online today because someone invited you to watch online. And the reason that we invite people to hear the word of God is because we don't want to just be people who know good news. We want to be people that share good news. We want to be people that say, hey, come and hear this gospel. Come and hear how Christ can change a life. Uh, Just last week, I was out uh, where I work out, and I got a chance to invite somebody. And just right there, right before we worked out, I said, hey, you know, come on. We'd love to have you at church. You can come in person. You can watch online. Love to be able to do this, man. We, we work out together. Love for you to hear more about the word of God. Love for to worship Jesus with you. And so if you're here, that's why you were invited to hear the gospel. And so we want to encourage you to give your life to Jesus, to place your faith and your trust in Christ. But for some of you today, you have done that. You know Christ. So how do we guard it? Verse 12, Paul says, guard the gospel by trusting in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 12 at the end, I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Understand that God is the ultimate guard of the gospel. Even though you and I do this, God is the one who is in full control. So that means this, no government will ever shut him down. No person will ever stop this. That the gospel will go, that the gospel will endure, the gospel will get out. And we can take uh, solace in that this morning, find peace in that, find encouragement in that in tough times. But also notice this, study and communicate the gospel. Look in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ. You and I ought to study the word of God, study the gospel, rehearse the gospel message in our lives daily, remembering what Christ has done for us and share that. One of the greatest ways to grow in your faith is to share your faith. Because when you share your faith with someone else, they're going to challenge you in that faith. You might go, well, wait a minute, I can't share my faith. I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers, right? Somebody asked me this week, he was like, hey, can you help me out with this passage in Ezekiel? Nope, not right now. It's going to take me a while. You know why? Because it's Ezekiel, right? Who understands Ezekiel all the time? Hey, pastor, can you explain all these horns and things in Revelation? Not right now. Got to study it a little bit more because it's Revelation, right? So listen, you're not going to always know all the answers. That's fine. Look at the person and go, hey, you know what? I don't know that right now, but if you'll give me some time, I'll, I'll research it. We'll get back together, have Dr. Pepper sit down and talk about it again. Right? You can continue on the conversation. 
But when you share your faith, you invite people, what you're doing is you're growing in that because you're having to research, you're having to rehash, you're having to practice, you're having to share the gospel. It's not just knowing the good news, it's sharing that good news. So we study it, we share it. We're going to get into that a little bit next week in chapter 2 of Passing It Down. Chapter 4, preach the gospel. But I want you to notice verses 9 through 12 and then we're done. The greatest way to guard the gospel is to value the gospel. Look in verse 9, he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own power and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which I suffer as I do. I wrote this statement out this week. Religious people find God useful. Cross-bearing disciples find God beautiful. Religious people just find God useful. Followers of Jesus find God beautiful. Why? Because you see the beauty of what Christ has done in that text. It says that he has saved us, verse 9. He saved us from the wrath of our sin, which is hell. He saved us from the wrath and penalty of sin, which is separation from him forever. He has saved us. Then not only has he saved us, but he's called us, the text says. He's called us into holy living. He's given us purpose in our lives. But then I notice verse 10 as well, and I love this part. Notice it again in the text. He's abolished death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, the Bible would teach us this as believers in Jesus Christ. Unless God raptures us out and just calls us into heaven, you're going to face a physical death. There's going to be someone who's going to preach your funeral one day. Someone who will preach my funeral one day unless God, again, just raptures us out. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, death has no power. Death has no hold. Because when the believer in Jesus Christ dies, yes, their body remains. And you may have your body put in a tomb or a coffin and, and buried in a ground, but your soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. That when you die, you're immediately in God's presence forever. There is no separation that death causes the believer in God in that relationship. Not even a nanosecond is there separation. I mean, I think of it this way. You close your eyes this side of heaven, you breathe your last breath, and then you immediately open them to be in the presence of the Lord. It's just a passing from this life into the next. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of what Christ has done. Because when Christ came out of that tomb and he walked out of that tomb, death had no hold over him. So those who trust in Christ, death has no hold over us. So Romans 8 teaches us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death. It has been abolished by the work of the gospel. John Stott, a theologian, wrote it this way, and I love the way he put it. He said, the proper epitaph to write for a Christian is not a dismal, uncertain petition, R.I.P., but a joyful, certain affirmation, C. A-D, Christ abolished death. Study the gospel, teach the gospel, value the gospel. This is the way we guard the gospel. 
know, there's a, there's a spot in the United States I always loved to visit and had the privilege opportunity to visit a lot uh, because I used to live on the East Coast for most of my life in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And, uh, we were close to Washington, D.C. in both those places. So we could do a lot of day trips up to Washington, D.C. How many of you have been to Washington, D.C.? Just quick show of hands. Okay, quite a few of you. All right, quite a few in our first service as well. So if you've never been, do your best to get to Washington, D.C. in your lifetime. Okay, lot to do. It's an awesome place. Save yourself a couple of days. But the, the one thing you absolutely have to do, that is my favorite thing to do that we try to do every time I go, is go down to Arlington, Virginia. Go to the, the um, National Cemetery there and look at some of the old graves and some of the cool things they've got there. But go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, if you've never visited, it's one of the most spectacular things to see. See, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier houses three unknown soldiers who have died in wars. Uh, one from World War I, one from World War II, one from the Korean War. And what's so impressive about visiting the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is the men who guard it. See, these men that guard it, it's a high honor. There's only been 600 men who have uh, guarded the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And they watch this, and they are on guard 24-7, 365 days a year, no matter the weather. You know, the tomb of the unknown soldier, there has been someone guarding that tomb for every hour, every minute, and every second since 1932. You just stop and think about that through all the elements. And what they do is these guards work for 24-hour shifts, and they rotate the guards every 30 minutes in the summer, every hour in the winter. For those guards to get ready for their shift on duty, it takes them eight hours to prepare. Eight hours to make sure their uniform's right, their haircut's right, everything's right. Can you imagine preparing eight hours to go to work? <laughs> and you get ready for eight hours before you show up to work? I mean, the, the dedication of these men is absolutely amazing. And then when you get to watch when they switch the guard, it, it's, it's just breathtaking. I absolutely love it. But when I was thinking about this concept of guarding this week, my mind went to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And I was thinking of all that dedication. And see, they have given their time, their effort, their life to guarding that tomb because they value the people who are in it. They value the sacrifice that those men have made. They value the life that those men gave for our country. So they said, we'll guard it. We'll make sure nobody defaces it or anything. We'll, we'll guard this tomb. But you know what? As they're standing there guarding that tomb, as they take their 21 paces in one direction, turn on a dime and take another 21 paces, turn and take another 21 paces, for all those paces that they're making, for all those hours they're putting into guarding, they don't know the men they're guarding. Paul says, guard the gospel. Guard the one you know by the name of Jesus Christ. Guard the one who knows you by the name of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. Be willing and able to suffer for him. Study the gospel. Teach the gospel. Guard the gospel. Because you will guard what you value.